Um, well, we just finished this retreat at Spirit Rock, a five or six day retreat. And the retreat had a theme. And generally, most of the retreats actually don't have themes. Most of the retreats are either a Vipassana retreat or a Metta retreat. And so either we're doing mindfulness meditation or loving-kindness meditation. And that, that's basically what we do when there's a retreat at Spirit Rock. And there, there are some other themes. There'll be a creativity retreat. Or there'll be themes, there'll be retreats for different populations. Uh, there's a men's retreat, there's women's retreat, there's retreats for um, different communities, um, whether it's, you know, uh, gay, lesbian, transgendered, bisexual, queer community retreat, or if there's a people of color retreat, or if there's, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There's, there's, there's various themes in that way. But in terms of Dharma practice, we did a slightly different theme. We did a retreat based on a, uh, a way of conceptualizing practice as the three centers. The head center, the heart center, the belly center. And um, if, you, if you noticed, it was actually a little bit the way I started the instructions. I said, okay, you know, in your body, what's happening in your body? You know, is it tired or is it excited or is it tight or relaxed or what's happening in your heart? Happy or sad or, you know, bored or whatever might be in the heart center. And what's happening in your head? Are you busy or is it quiet? And so the three centers are a way to do, a way to organize or to look at or to pay attention to the human experience. And it it covers the same terrain ultimately as the four foundations of mindfulness. Because the four foundations of mindfulness, what, what is that covering? This human experience. And so we sometimes use different skillful means to pay attention to what is it to be human and how can we be mindful of this human experience, which is, of course, sitting in your seat, right? It's your experience. How can we pay attention to it? What's skillful in helping us pay attention? And so the centers aren't so much explicit in Buddhist teaching so much in the way that we taught it, but they're implicit. They're there. And... <clears throat> And the Buddha often gave teachings about the body. He gave teachings about the heart. He gave teachings about the mind. So there's the three centers again. And for me, it's part of a bigger task, a bigger uh, goal. It's not simply to divide up and look, but to be, be able to um, discern or discriminate the centers in the service of wholeness, in the service of knowing ourselves completely. Carl Jung once said, he said, the most terrifying thing is to accept oneself completely. The most terrifying thing is to accept oneself completely. And that's all the Dharma asks of you, is to actually accept yourself completely. And this is one way to think of the 
human experience. Think of your own experience. And, or not just think of it, organize it so we can pay attention to it, so we can know it, so we can be present within it, so it begins to illuminate itself. And part of the, part of the uh, skillful means that's used in all of the mindfulness meditation uh, practices is to simplify things or to separate things in order to illuminate them. In other words, we sit, right? We sit down like we just did. That's a very simple way to begin to organize ourselves in order to illuminate what's here. We, and then within that, we start to pay attention to even smaller parts of our experience to illuminate that experience. So to pay attention to our body is to illuminate, to begin to understand, to begin to see, well, what is a body? What is it beyond our ideas or beyond our beliefs or beyond our biological knowledge or beyond our scientific understanding of what a body is? But what is a body in its, in its experiential revelation? <coughs> Excuse me. You know, what's the living experience beyond the concepts and ideas and beliefs of this body, this aliveness that's sitting here? And so we simplify in order to illuminate, or we discern or discriminate different parts of our experience in order to illuminate them in order to highlight them so we can see, well, what's the truth? What's the Dharma here? And that's why the four foundations gets divided up in that way, or it's why we go from not just uh, being aware of the body, but then even simplifying more, the breath. I mean, that's what the, like the most simple, basic human experience is the fact that we're a body breathing. I mean, what, what could be more universal I mean, all mammals, I mean, uh, even, uh, not even just man, most animal, every animal is, you know, the fish the, uh, are breathing. We're, there's this breath. It's such a simple, ordinary part of life. And we're saying, oh, not only pay attention to your body, just pay attention to your breath. And you could take that all the way to enlightenment, to liberation. The, that's what the Buddha did. That's what he paid attention to on the night of his enlightenment. He simply was being mindful of the breathing. And all of this is in the service of liberation, freedom, awakening, enlightenment, wholeness, insight. Whatever words resonate for you, whatever words speak to you, I like the idea from the, of what the Dalai Lama said. He said, our greatest task is to become more fully human. Our greatest task is to become more fully human. And I, I, we could just think of it that way. We could think of what we're doing here is, how, what is it to mature as human beings? What's the, what, how mature can we be? How... Uh, 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 um, how fully human can we be? What does it mean if we take it all the way? 
Um, and one way even, you know, I love the idea of enlightenment or awakening or liberation, but sometimes it, for people it seems like such a far-off idea or so far away. People think, oh, that, you know, it's, a, it's something for somebody else or for some, somebody sitting on a mountaintop somewhere. But another way we could think about what happened for the Buddha was he realized a possibility for human beings that was beyond the conventional sense of maturity. The conventional sense of what a human being becomes or can become. And we've, you know, and the conventional sense of maturity is kind of you grow up and you can be responsible for yourself and take care of yourself and participate in society and, you know, kind of, you know, you're, you're an adult. And from, the, from this perspective, that's the, that's the beginning of being adult, not the end of being an adult. That's the beginning of starting to see what's possible for us as human beings. That there are qualities of heart, there are qualities of mind that we can develop that aren't simply analytic or practical or logical or aren't simply having emotional intelligence, which is very skillful. But it's even beyond that. The Buddha talked about the boundless capacity of heart the boundless capacity of our heart for love or for compassion or for joy or for equanimity. That these are states of being that we can realize as we mature. Or in, the, or, or in terms of our mind that we can... <clears throat> well, it's not just that we know how to use our mind or our mind is well developed or that it's bright and intelligent and creative, that's all great but that the mind can begin to see itself, see its own nature, recognize its nature, begin to see the nature of all things, the characteristics of life, and then begin to live from that. So we, the, the characteristics in Buddhism is that life has a certain quality of dissatisfaction in it, or dukkha, or suffering, and that's inherent in, in human life, it's not a mistake. It's not even a problem. It's just part of the, the, the way it is. It's like, you know, if you have a computer, it has a screen or something. Well, if you have a human life, you have suffering. It's part of the deal. It's the way it was designed, intelligent or not. Um, another of the characteristics is that everything is impermanent. And this is one that we tend to know pretty well. We, we know it, at least intellectually, right? Everything is impermanent. Anybody not know that? Anybody think there's something permanent in the world? Okay. Everybody know that there's absolutely nothing to hold on to? Is that clear too? <laughs> little, little shaky there, huh? Because it's all impermanent. How can we hold on to it? So, so the maturity, and, that, and, and the Buddha said, if, you, if we really understood the truth of impermanence, we would be awakened. So it's not just the intellectual understanding, but we know it through the depth of our being, that level of maturity. Or the, or the understanding of not-self. 
the characteristic of life that it's selfless or that it has a quality that's sometimes called emptiness. And it doesn't mean that nothing's here or that we're not here. It's just we're not here in the way we tend to think we're here. We're not here as a separate thing. We're not here as a... that our identity is a relative identity. It's kind of a good idea some of the time, right? Eugene is a good idea most of the time. Sometimes it's a, not a great idea. But I mean, it's, it's, it's just an idea. It's not the living actuality of what we are. And it doesn't mean you have to get rid of the Eugene or Mary or Kristen or John or whoever you might be called. But, um, but there's something more that's much freer than that identity based on history, on who your parents were and their parents and all that. And it's, and it's not to denigrate that or disrespect that in any way, shape or form. In fact, the more the sense, the not-self factor is understood, then we appreciate the total interconnectedness of our life and lives, both with our historical relations, but also with everybody else. That we are of one fabric. And the one fabric, like if you look at a carpet, even you can't quite see this carpet because there are a lot of people sitting on it, but if you look at a carpet, you can see there's a lot of shapes and colors and designs and textures on a carpet. And, and there's all the different unique particulars of the carpet when you look at it. But when you step back, you see, oh, it's one carpet. And so here we see everybody's unique. Each, each person here is unique. It doesn't take away from your uniqueness to see that it's one taste, one fabric, one expression of true nature in myriad forms, in myriad forms. So that's one way to begin to think about what the Dalai Lama said when he said, our greatest task is to become more fully human, more fully human, more fully ourselves, more essentially who and what we are our Buddha nature, our true nature. <clears throat> so I'll speak a little bit about each center and what I'd like you to do is actually pay attention to each center as I speak about it. In fact, you could, you could play with it, listen from each center. Listen from your belly and your body when I'm talking about the body center. Listen from your heart when I'm speaking about the heart center. Listen from your mind when I'm speaking about the head center. And I, I, I gave the three centers these names. I mean, they're, they're, they're kind of in the, in the greater terminology somewhere of Buddhism, but I put them together. So it's the body of awakening, and it's centered at the belly, just below the navel. That's the center of the body center. And you know, this area is uh, called the hara in Buddhism, or in Taoism it's called the dantian, or in Sufism it's called the kath. 
many, many traditions recognize this center as an important center of embodiment. And one of the practices that we, uh, one of the ways we think of practice and how, uh, of what's important in practice is to actually be embodied. Now, that, and in this way, mindfulness is really a, not a great word. We could just as well say bodyfulness. We're doing a bodyfulness practice now. And so we want to be fully in our body. And you want to feel your body or sense your body as I'm speaking. And especially the area here in the belly. The belly center, the body center, the, the hara. I remember I first read about the hara. It was one of the early Dharma books many, many years ago. And there were only like four Dharma books. Now you can go in and there's just walls of Dharma books. And it was a book, it was a book called um, Zen and the Art of Archery by a, a German fellow, Eugene Harrigel, I believe his name was. And then he wrote a second book, but in the second book he had an introduction about how he first met Zen. And what happened, what he, the story he tells is he was in a school, he was teaching in Japan uh, at one of the universities and he was having lunch in the dining hall and there was an earthquake and it was rocking and rolling and you know, we live in San Francisco, we know how it is, and, but it was a big earthquake and people started running out, running out, running out and he was starting to go out and he noticed two fellows who just sat there like this during their earthquake. And they were doing hara meditation. They were Zen practitioners and they were just right there, right on the ground, right in their belly. And then, you know, the shaking stopped and they went out with their meal. So he was impressed by that. You know, it's, it's, an, it's impressive, you know. Let's see what we do when this building starts shaking, everybody, right? <laughs> Actually, I was once, I was once, how many people remember Fenella's Finnish saunas? How many people? Raise your hand if you remember. So Fenella's Finnish sauna was up near Market Tower and, Records. pardon? Where Tower, like Where Tower Records was on, on Market near Castro, between Noe and Castro. And Fenella's had been built, I knew Fenella, he had built it with his father by hand, and it was all big concrete and, and, and tile. It was an old Finnish sauna. And I was in there one time with some friends of mine, and we're sitting around, and it started shaking. And there was like, I, I remember what happened. We were sitting in there, and we were talking, and you know, it's, it was the old kind of sauna where you have to open the door to the furnace with a stick and you throw the water in and you duck as the steam comes around. You know, and then you quickly shut the, the iron door. And it was, it was a great sauna, steam. And, um, and we were sitting in there and I remember one of us said, we said, I wouldn't want to be here in an earthquake. <laughs> and you, you know, you know it about five minutes later. It just started shaking. And one of my friends, who's a real shaman, he was my music teacher and a total shaman, he just, the, the room started shaking and he just got up and went, Aah! 
<laughs> and in his own Zen way, he, he nailed it. <laughs> Anyhow, <laughs> that was a little aside. I didn't plan that in the talk. Um, so the hara, so the belly center. And the body, and the body, it's so important in Buddhism. You know, last year I did a 12-week class on the body because it's so essential just to feel your body now. You could do the, the whole talk could be you feeling your body, sensing your body. Even the, the places of contact where your hands touch, where your feet are touching. And notice how it takes you out of your mind, out of the thought, thinking processes. Or, or feeling your, your rear on the chair, or your back on the chair, or the coolness of the, or if you're warm, the heat, however it is. But it brings us into the present moment immediately. It's, the, it's what's so invaluable about our physical uh, aliveness. It's only alive now. You can only be mindful of the body right now. You can only feel the body right now. And it's this felt sense that begins to ground us and center us and unify body and mind. And it's, it's just beautiful that way. It's a beautiful, skillful means. And from Ajahn Mun, who was my teacher's teacher's teacher, he was, uh, who was like Jack Cornfield and then Ajahn Chah, and Ajahn Chah's teacher, Ajahn Mun, he said, in your investigation of the world, Never allow the mind to desert the body. Never allow the mind to desert the body. Examine the body, examine its nature. See the elements or the, the sensations that comprise it. See the impermanence of the body, the selflessness of the body, whether sitting or standing or walking or lying down. And these are, of course, the four postures, sitting, standing, walking down, that the Buddha says, be mindful of the body in these four postures and then everything in between, like 24-7. And Ajahn Mun goes on to say, he says, when the true nature of the body is seen fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world will become clear. In this way, the purity of mind can shine forth, timeless and delivered. So uh, that's a whole, you could do your whole practice. That's why the breath goes all the way to enlightenment. The body goes all the way to enlightenment. You, it's a dharma door. It's a dharma gate, our actual aliveness. The, the, the phrase in Buddhism is that this is a precious human birth. And it's precious because it's rare. And it's precious because this body, this physical form, is one of the doorways to awakening. And, it's, and, and you don't have to wait. You can feel it right now. You can sense it right now. As, uh, as you're hearing me, you'll be able to hear me. You'll be able to understand what I'm saying. Feel your body. Sense your body. And then the wonders of the world will become clear. In this way, the purity of mind, this is a euphemism for awakening, can shine forth, timeless and delivered. He's beginning to point to the relationship between the body center and the mind, the head center, the purity of mind. We ground here in the present, and it begins to have its impact so that the mind can awaken. 
it's also, the body is a very, very important center, the belly center, this, this hara, or dantian, or kath, is very important for us as householders. We live in the world and we function, we need to function in the world. And one of the biggest difficulties for meditation practitioners is how do I stay mindful in the world? How do I practice from a place of mindfulness, of wakefulness? And not just go into my habitual pattern when I go to work, or in relationship, or dealing with family, or whatever it might be. The body is the key. The body is, is one of the keys. I shouldn't say it's just the key. Because the, the hara is the center of presence. It's the center of stability and groundedness. It's the center of, of um, uh, embodiment and um, movement, right? This is the center that the martial arts rely on so they can effortlessly do their dance. And if you've ever practiced the martial art, this is where you're taught to focus while you're moving or flying around. All those great movies they have now where they're flying around and doing their martial arts, they're centered in their belly. That's where all the movement comes from. And, and it's the same truth if you're a dancer or an or a, a athlete. The real center is in the belly. And so that, it's, it's where movement comes from, it's where functioning comes from. One of the, sometimes, because I like to ride bikes, sometimes that's the place I'll focus on in the bike ride, and it's like the whole body is moving from the belly. Even though the legs are moving and all this other stuff's happening, it's all hap it starts to, as if it becomes one of one fabric, and it's all happening, and it's being known and so the mindfulness becomes very easy, very simple. So just for a little more emphasis, the Buddha said, it is within this fathom-long body, with its perception and inner sense, that there is the whole cosmos. There is the cosmos, the origination of the cosmos, the cessation of the cosmos, and the path that leads to freedom. And it's beautiful. We, we ourselves are a microcosm of the whole world, of, of the whole universe, of the whole cosmos. When Ajahn Mun says, be aware of the elements of the body, he's talking about the elemental nature of all of physical reality, of which we are the same, we are, body is made up of the same elements of earth, air, and fire, and water, and space. It's one fabric. <clears throat> so now, let your attention move into your heart center for a minute. As if you could breathe in and out from this center, right here, right here in the middle of your chest, I'm pointing at, for those of you who can't see. Right there, you know where it is. Not, not where the physical heart is, but actually in the center of the chest. Yeah, there it is, you got it. And just like, as if you can imagine the breath going there, 
just starting to feel the heart center. And of course, this is often where we look when we have emotions and feelings and we're sad. We might put our hand on our heart. You can put your hand on your heart if it helps center you there. <clears throat> Just to feel this area. It's a very, this in fact is more emphasized in many spiritual schools. The the uh, bhakti path, the path of love, the path of the heart, the great heart of Jesus. Or sometimes you'll see in the Hindu tradition, you'll see uh, Hanuman, the the uh, monkey god who has his, I, can't, I think it's Hanuman, who has his heart kind of ripped open, right? The love that is the path of awakening, or is that it's an expression of awakening. <clears throat> and so this is it's the center of our ordinary conventional emotions of happiness and sadness and you know hurt and pain and joy. But also it's it, it in Buddhism they talk about it in another octave. And that octave is not quite so personal as the emotional realm. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's, it's, um, it's the boundless capacity of the heart for love or for joy or for appreciation or for um, uh, uh, compassion. And, and in Buddhism it's um, what the understanding is that metta or friendliness or love or loving kindness is the foundation of this center and that it's you know the Dalai Lama is famous for going around the world and saying you know he meets each person as if they're an old friend and you could do that even for tonight or do it for a day as you meet people, as you talk to people in the supermarket or in the car dealership or wherever you might be at work, treat them as if they're an old friend. Speak to them from metta, from loving kindness. Metta is also translated as friendliness. And so the Dalai Lama goes around and his attitude towards the world and towards other beings is that of metta, of loving kindness. It's, an, it's a radical way to go through the world. And it's one of the possibilities of our maturation as human beings. That we all have this capacity, this possibility for the heart to be, uh, as Sharon Salzberg said in her book, the second book was called uh, uh, A Heart as Wide as the World. And then when this heart, when this open heart, when this undefended heart, when this unconstricted heart, this heart which is not simply a personal heart, but the universal heart, when it meets suffering, it responds. And it responds quite naturally with compassion, with kindness, with care. And, it's, and then compassion becomes a doorway to freedom. Compassion keeps showing us, the suffering of the world keeps showing us the compassion that's needed in order for 
for ourselves and for all beings to ultimately be free, to be happy. And the, and, the, and the heart, when it meets the goodness of the world, the beauty of the world, the, the flowers and the, and the deer and the turkeys, like at Spirit Rock or whatever it might be, uh, uh, or, or taking a beautiful bike ride up on Mount Tam, when the heart opens and the joy is there, the joy is boundless. It, it's not even personal at a certain point. Or the joy and the appreciative joy of the good, goodness of other people and the success and the goodwill and the possibility that we all have to share this life in, in a really beautiful way. To see the creativity of people and the, uh, 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 all the ways all the unique ways we can express ourselves as we mature, as we can contribute together to, the, to our society, to our world, to one another. And to, and to enjoy that, enjoy that uniqueness and that uh, uh, creativity and the various offerings that we each have to give, we each have within us to offer as we mature and, and participate in our world. And so the, what's called empathetic joy, or the empathy of the heart, the delight of the heart, the courage of the heart. And then just breathing with your heart, feeling your heart. And you know, it's part of what we do when we end each evening when we offer the merit of the practice, may it be for the benefit of all beings, and we do some loving kindness. And that's, that's the expression of this universal heart, this one heart. <clears throat> Even if you consume as many books as the sands of the Ganges, Ryokan said, it is not as good as really catching one verse of Zen. If you want the secret of Buddhism, here it is. You ready? Everything is in the heart. Everything is in the heart. And so the body, the heart, the head center, the heart of compassion, the eye of wisdom. I don't... If you can see our good friend Kuan Yin here, if you look in the middle of her forehead, she has this little eye. This is the eye of wisdom. This, uh, this center, and this is a center in many, many traditions, opens up. It has its own uh, possibility, its own level of maturation. So in more common sense, it's, it's the center of the mind and the ways we develop the mind, the intelligence of mind and the creativity of mind and the and the way we can uh, learn to be rational and logical and practical and all, the mind can develop and there's a certain level of maturity that we all have, we all know. When the eye of wisdom happens, it means we see with the eyes of a Buddha. We see from the perspective of true nature, how true nature, how Buddha nature sees the world how a Buddha sees the world. It means we see the big picture. 
that we're not just caught in the small picture, that the awareness is free, that the consciousness is open, that the mind itself, the small mind, becomes peaceful. It's said in spiritual traditions that the mind is a, a wonderful servant and a terrible master. A wonderful servant. And that we train our minds, we, we begin to teach our mind to be mindful, to be in the present moment, to pay attention to what's here so it can begin to see what's true and it becomes illuminated in the process. One of the things that happens in, in longer meditation retreats that people start to notice, it's like they'll start to get centered in the body and practicing with a tremendous amount of kindness and care and compassion with the suffering that is part of human life. And then all of a sudden as, they, as things start to come into alignment, into harmony, their minds get open and bright. It's like people come in and say, it's like somebody turned on the lights inside. Not outside, inside. And it's, and it's really true. It's like the mind, instead of all of the agitation and all the tension in the mind or the torment of the mind, at some point when that relaxes, when that begins to recede or calm down or the traditional hindrances begin to fade, then we start to have access to our mind in a new way. The eye of wisdom begins to open. And we can use that capacity, this brilliancy of mind, this illumination of mind, this, this openness of mind and peacefulness of mind to see the truth, to see the Dharma, to realize the truth of the Buddha's teachings. And so the, this center becomes the center of direct knowing, of wisdom, of awareness. The Buddha said, luminous is this mind, luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but it is colored, it is shaded, it is obscured, it is, it is colored by the attachments that visit it. Luminous, and this unlearned people do not really understand, so they do not cultivate this mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is free of the attachments that visit it. This the noble follower of the way truly understands, so for them there is cultivation of this mind. This is the Buddha talking about your mind. Each person here, this possibility for this, for the mind to mature to another level, another sense of capacity of what the mind is capable of, this openness and awareness and knowing and, and, and uh, 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 luminosity. And when the mind opens in this way, it's actually very quiet. It's very simple. Things are so much simpler. It's much more like just feeling your body. It's so simple. And then you can turn the mind, you can look at something, but it's not full of kind of uh, comparative thinking or having to worry about things, but just opens to things. And then you can you can start to know things. It's one of the, the intuitive capacities are both 
in the belly center from the body. Some people are gut intuitives and some people the mind is also one of the intuitive centers that we just begin to see. Or as some friends of mine say, they like to say, oh, I just got a download. But that really, it's like, oh, something lined up and I, when you totally get something, it just goes and, and you didn't do it. You didn't think your way there. It's a direct knowing. And, it, and the mind itself can rest in not knowing. Not knowing isn't a problem. Not knowing is where actual direct knowing comes from. Not knowing is one of the characteristics of the openness of mind. So these three centers, the body or belly center, the heart of compassion, of love, of care, the eye of awakening, the eye of wisdom, all in the service of, as the Dalai Lama put it, that we may become more fully what a human being can become. And it's the potential for each human being. I'll end with a poem from Izumi Shikibu, who is a, she was a wonderful Zen poet, I think the 18th century. And remember, the moon is a euphemism for awakening in, in Japanese Zen. Watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky. I knew myself completely, no part left out. Let's sit for a minute, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.